Beloved, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our sermon text this morning will come from Exodus chapter 2. We'll hear Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Exodus 2, beginning in verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for your word, and now we pray that we may understand what it was that Moses would be called by that name, so that we may understand better the name by which we call upon you, and that you would do these things for us by your Spirit speaking through your word. Amen. I don't know what it's like for everybody, although I think it's probably kind of similar, that uh, at the end of each Christmas season, you get out the bins and to put the Christmas decorations back in, and it doesn't fit. And I swear that it all was in there before, and I don't understand where all this stuff came from, and is there more stuff? And apparently there is, and I don't know where all the more stuff because it's only been, like, what, four weeks? And so, well, okay, some of it's longer than four weeks. But I do remember, I do remember where one decoration came from that one year where um, our oldest was, I think, three, and we had not had a nativity scene before, so my mom sent us one, and, and when we unpacked it, uh, the three-year-old took the uh, little baby, like, so, so they're, sort of, they're sort of like supposed to be Christmas ornaments, uh, but it was, but then a body, anyway, whatever. Doesn't matter for the sake of the story. Anyway, the little thing, the little baby in, in this baskety thing, and he clearly demonstrating his, 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 uh, his descent from a strong lineage of agricultural people. Uh, my, my dad, having grown up on a, on a dairy farm, he, he knew that that could not be a manger because a manger is far bigger than an infant. Like an infant is yay big. And a manger is a feed trough. And you cannot have any kind of ruminant uh, eating out of something yay big. It just doesn't work. That's like a dog dish. And so, and so he knew that that couldn't be, that clearly could not be a manger. So he picked it up and said, well, this is baby Moses. Because it looked like, you know, in, in all the picture Bibles, uh, that's, that's baby Moses. And he started walking around the house with baby Moses. And then we lost track completely of, uh, of baby Moses, and every year it's sort of been like, well, where is baby Moses? Uh, 
uh, and, and it's sort of an ongoing mystery in our family. And, and of course, it won't be a surprise to you that at that point, our, our child demonstrated a, a deep and profound insight into the rich nature of biblical typology, as we'll see from our text this morning. As, as in our text, in Exodus chapter 2, God is providing a Savior, and that becomes apparent as uh, we see very plainly that Moses is presented to us as a second Noah. And that may not be immediately apparent, but it becomes apparent very, very quickly as we consider uh, what, what Moses tells us about his own birth, his own, his own coming here. It says that uh, in, in verse 2, the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, saw that he was a fine child, and, and this harkens back to Genesis chapter 5. Remember, uh, you got to pretend that you're reading the Bible from cover to cover, and I know a lot of you who are adults have tried reading the Bible from the beginning, and you gave up at Leviticus, but if you were but you probably got from Genesis through to Exodus, or at least up to Exodus chapter 2. And so you're, you pretend that you're reading the Bible for the first time, uh, have never read it before, and, and there's not that much that you've read already. And so you're remembering Genesis chapter 5. And in Genesis chapter 5, we have a genealogy, but in that genealogy, we learn about the birth of Noah. And in Genesis 5, uh, well, beginning in verse 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. There's something about Noah at his birth that his father Lamech was, recognized him as someone who would bring relief, someone who would bring comfort to people. And that was indeed what he saw, what he saw clearly by, by spiritual prophecy, what he saw was that Noah was going to be a deliverer. And indeed, of course, we know that Noah did deliver. He delivered uh, all of mankind, and he delivered. He was the agent through whom God delivered mankind and delivered the animals of the earth from the coming flood. And in that same way, Moses's parents saw that he was beautiful. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, the apostle comments on this text uh, from Exodus chapter 2. He says in, 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 in Hebrews 11, verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the kin, king's edict. What does that mean? I think, I think it's easy to read that and go like, well, of course, his parents saw that he was beautiful because every baby is beautiful. Now, those who's been around for a while know that that is literally not true. Um, I've, there, there, there are a lot of babies who uh, are not. And so there's something more going on. And it's particularly in that phrase that as the apostle says, they were not afraid of the king's edict. And a lot of people have looked at that text, look at what Hebrews 11 says, and then go back to Exodus chapter 2 and say, well, how is it, how can, how can the apostle possibly say that they were not afraid of the king's edict because we read that uh, she hid the child, she hid Moses for three months. Doesn't that demonstrate fear? And what the apostle is saying is like, no, that's not fear. Fear would be 
uh, if you were afraid of the king, if you're afraid of his edict, of his command, then you would have done what he commanded. And of course, in, in Hebrews, I'm sorry, in Exodus chapter 1, verse 22, what Pharaoh had commanded was that every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. If they were afraid of Pharaoh, they would have obeyed him. They didn't obey him. They took a chance, uh, as, as you might say. It took a, they took the risk in faith because they saw he was a beautiful child. There's something about this child, just as there's something about Moses, I'm sorry, something about Noah at birth. There's something about Moses at birth. There's something about Noah at birth that indicated that the Lord had chosen this baby for some purpose, and so they were not afraid. By faith, they understood, the apostle says, that there are more important things than this life. And so they were not afraid of what Pharaoh could do to them, of what Pharaoh might do to them. Instead, they acted in faith, and they hid him for three months. And then it was that Moses was saved with an ark. Uh, verse 3, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed with bitumen and pitch. But the word that's translated basket in this translation that I'm using this morning in the ESV. It might be translated ark if you've got a different Bible translation. It's the same word that's translated ark in, for Noah's ark, and it's the same word that's translated ark for the ark of the covenant. And this is weird, right? How does one word apply to a really big boat and then to you know, obviously, what, what's a little basket with a baby in it, and then, and then to the Ark of the Covenant. How can you have one word apply to that? And this is where the problem is that our imaginations have all been shaped by story Bibles and the pictures in them, instead of by the words of the text, uh, which is unfortunate, and, and, but it is a mystery, because I, I was actually mystified by this. Like, it doesn't make sense to me either. And then I had a moment of insight, and I got out a dictionary. And I looked up the word ark, which is like, I think I was in my, I, I must have been like in my mid-30s when this suddenly occurred to me to do this. In uh, an ark, look it up, people, it's a box. It's a box with a lid. That's what ark means. And, and now I wonder, and this, of course, leads me down the rabbit hole of wondering why our Bible translations don't just translate the word, the word as box. You know, the Noah, God told Noah to build a box <laughs> with a lid on it. And, 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 uh, and, and, uh, and, and as soon as I say it out loud or say that the, the, the Israelites took with them the box of the covenant into battle. <laughs> yeah, see, I'm not even trying to be funny. So the only way I think that we can save, that we can truly understand the biblical text is just by bringing the word ark back into daily usage. So, oh, Amazon left another ark uh, on, on the porch, and we got to break down the ark so we can put a cardboard and recycling. Um, just, I think we can do it. Uh, but, but here's a point. Here's a point: is in in our, it's a box, right, with a lid with a lid on it, and that's important. That because that's that makes sense of what happens uh, later in the text when she opened it. When the, when the daughter of Pharaoh opens, it, she's actually literally opening the lid of this box that's floating around, that's floating down the Nile, and. The, the, and what we're told is that his mother made this box 
uh, made this basket out of, out of bulrushes, so reeds, but then covered it with bitumen and pitch, just like, just like Noah's Ark, which, which was not, not really a, a navigable boat. If, if you read the instructions carefully, it's just, it's, it, there's no rudder. You can't steer this thing. I was just blown around. All it was designed for was to float, but, but in order to keep it to float, uh, keep it afloat, rather, uh, God told Noah, cover it with pitch. So that's, you see the connection then that's being made in, in the text is that just as Noah was saved with an ark covered with pitch, so Moses was saved with an ark that is covered with pitch. And just like Noah then, Moses is saved because he's drawn out of the water. Just as the Lord saved Noah through the flood, so too was Moses saved through the floods of the Nile. He was cast into the Nile where he was supposed to be drowned. And instead of being drowned, just as all of the wicked were drowned in the flood of Noah, so too was, G- was Moses saved. Moses was drawn out of the water by means of an ark, just as Noah was saved from the waters of judgment by an ark. And so, there's, so, so as we read Exodus chapter 2, Everything possibly done is being done to underscore who Moses is, what kind of person Moses is. As God used Noah to save all mankind, God is going to use Moses in order to save his chosen people. But here's the thing, of course, is that Noah and Moses both pointed toward Jesus Christ. Because as we read in Matthew chapter 2, later on in the New Testament, God's enemies also tried to destroy the Savior when he was a baby. But he was kept safe, kept safe from the wrath of the second Pharaoh, if you will, of the more vicious Pharaoh, King Herod. And God's enemies continued to assault Jesus, continued to try to destroy the Savior throughout his earthly ministry, but most especially at the end of his ministry, where God's greatest enemy, our greatest enemy, Satan. Satan thought he had defeated God, didn't he? Because what did Satan do? Well, he did what Herod could not do. He had Jesus killed. The Savior was crucified on a cross. But just as Moses and Noah were cast on the waters and then drawn out, so was Jesus Christ cast into the death, cast into the grave, thrown into death itself crucified on the cross, but drawn out from death on the third day. So that Paul can say later in Romans that we have been buried with Christ in baptism and then out of the waters drawn out again to be raised with Him because He died for your sins so that you are no longer called by them but are instead called by His name. You are called Christians because you will be raised up with him on the last day, just as he was drawn out of the tomb itself and ascended up into heaven. 
as He was raised up in resurrection glory, so you will be raised up in resurrection glory. And because Christ was resurrected then, you have nothing to fear. Because by faith, Moses' parents were not afraid. By faith, they knew there is life. And that the life which God gives is greater than death. Because death comes, but death is not the final word for those who are in Christ. Rather, life is. Life in Christ. Resurrection in Christ is the final word. The resurrection which began with His resurrection will surely be concluded on the last day. And as Moses and Noah were beautiful children, who as infants, it could be seen by prophecy that they would comfort the people of God, that they would deliver God's people from their sufferings. So you have been delivered from your sufferings. Noah and Moses saved humanity and Israel. Jesus Christ saved His chosen people by giving you everlasting life. Beloved, Jesus Christ has defeated all your enemies for you. So take comfort in Him. God provides a Savior, but we ought not overlook the other aspect of our text in which the Savior's enemy is undone. Think about Pharaoh. Pharaoh, interestingly, is not named in our text, but he drives the text because Pharaoh was afraid of an Israelite leader. He feared, Pharaoh feared an Israelite leader. He is not like Moses' parents. Moses' parents were not afraid, but Pharaoh was afraid. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 10, he says to his people, uh, behold, I'm, well, I'll begin in verse 9, really, uh, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Pharaoh was afraid, and what he was afraid of was, in particular, an Israelite leader. Uh, he was, in general, he's afraid of the Israelites. They're going to gather strength, they're going to multiply, there's going to become too many of them. But he centered that fear. He centered that fear in a charismatic leader. Uh, just so there's somebody who's going to be an opposite number of Pharaoh, if you will. And that's, of course, going to be a, a man that's going to be a, who's, going to, who's going to arrive. And so the best course of action, then, to keep these people under control, ultimately, he drives to his kill all the males, kill them all at birth. And that's why his first plan to deal with the Israelites, uh, try to do it secretly through the Hebrew midwives at the end of Exodus chapter 1 was to kill all the baby boys uh, when they were born, and that didn't work. The, the midwives didn't go along with that plan, so instead, just after they're born, uh, throw them into the Nile, drown them in the Nile River. He was afraid. He was afraid that there would be an Israelite leader who would gather the people together, who would lead them in some way, shape, or form, lead them in rebellion against Pharaoh, and bring them out of the land. What Pharaoh should have feared was Israel's God. God was protecting 
the Israelites. It was God who was watching over his people. When Pharaoh tried to oppress them with hard labor, they multiplied all the more. Because God is not limited to worldly strength. God is not a man. And it's not rocket science, but apparently it's something that everybody has to learn again and again and again and again and again until they get it right. Both the wicked and the righteous. Because the righteous are afraid that God can't hear me. The righteous are afraid that God won't know, that God won't act, that God is not able to deliver. And so every page of Scripture is a testimony of God's power and His might and His grace and His mercy and His intent to deliver. But the wicked, the wicked don't get the message that the Lord's might is far greater than the might, the power of any man. And so you can see here in our text how God used women to defeat a king who was afraid of a man, a man who was blinded, a king rather, who was blinded by his own arrogance and in particular by his own fear. What's he, what's he afraid of? What's he looking for? There's going to be a leader. There's going to be a man. There's going to be somebody that I have to watch out for. And so the best way to get this guy is to kill him before he even grows up. Kill him at birth. So, who does he have to deal with? Well, he has to deal with Moses' mother. It's interesting. The apostle in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, talks about Moses' parents. But that is an exegetical Conclusion. I think it's, it's valid, right, that, I, that, 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 that Mr. Moses' dad uh, went, along, went along with the plan, right? It wasn't, it wasn't they, but because his parents, Moses' parents saw there was a beautiful child, but that is not what the text says in Exodus chapter 2. And the text says that she saw he was a fine child, and she hid him for three months. That his mother protects him, and then puts him in this, puts him in the basket covered over, and then in, in this little box covered with bitumen and pitch, and puts him in the Nile River. It is Moses' sister who keeps guard over him. And it's Pharaoh's daughter who finds him. Pharaoh's daughter who opens up the basket and sees that it's a Hebrew child sees that it's a little baby boy. Sees it's a circumcised little baby boy. Because, this is, because you look at a baby, you cannot tell what it is. Is a Hebrew, is an Egyptian? Tells it, it looks inside, looks at the private bits. That's a boy, and it's a Hebrew boy. And it's these women. It's these women, interestingly, who are cleverer than Pharaoh. Pharaoh thinks he's clever, right? He said, uh, let us deal shrewdly with them in Exodus 1 verse 10. Who's Pharaoh? Ask Pharaoh. What are you, Pharaoh? I'm shrewd. I'm clever. I'm smart. I'm wise to the ways of the world. I can outwit the Hebrews and their God. So these women... These women who are literally nobodies, you notice that? None of them have a name. 
now, now just let's, that, that's worth noting, right? Because Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Moses wrote this text. Anybody here seriously believe he doesn't know the name of his mother? Or his sister? Or his adoptive mother? Like he was confused on the point. Nobody ever brought it up? He doesn't name them for a reason. They're anonymous. They're unnamed. They're not important. You know, what do they do? What do these women do? The women through whom God works to defeat the plans of a very, very, very clever man who's going to outwit the man whom God might raise to defeat him. They scheme. They are shrewd. They are wise. Because after all, what does Moses' mother do? And then by the Hebrew midwives, uh, they, they were told by, by, by Pharaoh, kill the baby boys when they're born. And they outwitted Pharaoh by coming up with a cover story for why they couldn't do that. And Pharaoh's clever plan was defeated by these shrewder women in the same way. What does Moses' mother do? Well, she does exactly what Pharaoh says, doesn't she? Right? Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. Like, okie dokie. Cast him into the Nile. She threw him into the water where he would not be found. It's a perfect hiding place. And then as he's floating down there, I mean, just, we read this, we read, and what's interesting is we, we read the Bible. I think a lot of us read the Bible and we think that people are not actual people, right? They're flat, because all the people, after all, in Bible picture books are two-dimensional, so they're two-dimensional people. And so they just say these words, and they say, like, take this child and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. These women are not dumb. They are as smart as you, and they are as clued in as you and me. And so what do they see? That's that she opens this thing, she opens this basket, right? And she looks inside and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. This is a Hebrew baby boy. So she knows that at which she is looking. She is Pharaoh's daughter. But she, she is not ready to kill it. She takes pity on him. Saw he was a beautiful child. And then Moses' sister says, uh, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? That's, that's the way she probably said it. She didn't say, shall I go on it, right? She's not a fifth grader reciting lines of the Thanksgiving play. She's an actual human being, and she knows, the Pharaoh's daughter knows, exactly what is going on. She knows they are setting, they're, they're, this is, this is a, they're, 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 there's, like, there's a whole other narrative going on underneath here. They're the words that people say and the words that people mean. And, and, and Pharaoh's daughter knows exactly what words Moses' sister means because Moses' sister comes back with Moses' mother and she says, shall I go? And Oh, I'm sorry. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. In other words, take this child and nurse him for me. Wink, wink, wink and I will give you your wages. And then, when he was weaned, brought him back and raised this child, 
raise his child in Pharaoh's household. And Pharaoh's daughter names him, names him Moses, which sounds like I drew him out of the water. And at this moment that Pharaoh comes, I'm sorry, that Moses comes into Pharaoh's house, there's a question that's raised in our mind as readers, like, well, what, who is he going to be? Is he going to be from Pharaoh's household, or is he going to be from a household of the Levites? Is he going to be an Egyptian, or is he going to be a Hebrew? Right? And this is, this is where I am annoyed by every every movie, including the Ten Commandments, uh, that, which every movie version of this story. Because what does it always do? It always has this moment of revelation, whether it's Christian Bale or, or Charlton Heston or an animated version of Moses who, like, realizes, oh, I'm adopted. <laughs> He's named Moses. Like, she literally named him Moses. It's some point, again, do you think the kid never said, hey, how come I'm named drawn out of the water? How come I spent the first few years of my life dwelling amongst the Hebrews? Right? They're in on the game. He's in on the plan, fairly obviously, just Pharaoh. Pharaoh has this whole scam running right underneath his nose. Because the wicked, the wicked think that if they have the power, they're strong enough. They can beat people down. Because everybody else is just like them. Everybody else is motivated by fear. So you get enough power, you can make everybody else afraid of you. These women were not afraid. They're not dumb either. They knew exactly what game they were playing. They knew exactly what stakes they were rolling for. They knew what they were doing. But as the apostle says... They were not afraid. They did not fear the king. Beloved, be not afraid. Fear not. Do not fear the schemes of the wicked. Do not even fear the schemes of the evil one. I had a I had a, a, a stand for a while, a, a long-term gig, or th- about three months, where I was preaching for a Reformed church, uh, w- which was between pastors. And uh, the Reformed, they're the ones who give us the Heidelberg Catechism. It's really just the first question that's, that's good. The rest of it doesn't come anywhere near the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which I'm obliged by contract to say as a Presbyterian minister. It is true. Uh, I didn't bring that up when I was preaching for them. Uh, but... But what was interesting for me was that as they, as in their liturgy, every Sunday morning, uh, they pray the Lord's Prayer, but they prayed with a translation that said, uh, deliver us, uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from 
the evil one, not from evil. And it's an interesting translation choice if, if you, in, in the, in the, if you go back to, to the Greek, it could go either way. The word is evil, and it can legitimately be translated just evil, deliver us from evil, which is what I grew up praying, or it could be deliver us from the evil one. And that choice in translation, how you're going to say it, really does affect the way that you think. And, and I always have thought, and I think this is perfectly legitimate, that you just... It, you're, you're right if you think that. Deliver us from evil, the power of evil, that I not fall into deliver us from temptation, that we deliver us from, lead us not in temptation, deliver us from evil, that we not become evil people. But when you think of it in terms of deliver us from the evil one, especially in my case when I'm not used to praying that, really struck me and made me think a lot about that. And, and, and that's going to shape your imagination because it reminds you that we have a God who will deliver you from the evil one. That spiritual warfare is real. And that you may look at your life and think to yourself, well, I don't have enemies. I don't have anybody who's plotting and scheming to destroy me. And that's wonderful. But we do have the power of sin in this world, and the power of sin in this world does take a particular form of the devil who is a tempter, Satan who is the evil one. And I think there is that, that, that even for those who can confidently go through life without fear that your enemies are laying traps for you, that you're going to fall into a pit that's been dug for you by one of your neighbors, that you can still be afraid of the power of sin. Still be afraid of the wickedness in your own heart, be afraid of temptation, be afraid that at the end of the day, you will not emerge victorious. That the schemes of the evil one to defeat the work of our Lord will triumph and that you at least will be lost. Be not afraid. Fear not. Because the Lord is not bound. He is not bound by the powers of this present age. He is not a king like the kings of this earth, like Pharaoh or Idi Amin or the Kim family in North Korea. He is the Lord God who is pleased to defeat the most powerful man of his time through anonymous women who protected the life of a little baby who would grow up to destroy the Egyptian empire as a mere sideshow for the greater thing, his greater task, which was simply to lead the people of God out to Mount Sinai so that they could have a worship service and receive the commands of the Lord. The Lord has a purpose for you. And that purpose, that purpose is not 
Sinai, but Zion. It is to lead you out of this life and out of the troubles of this age and out of the schemes and away from the schemes of the evil one and to heavenly Zion. So there, at the end of the ages, you might worship him forever in the resurrection. So we see him face to face. The Savior cannot be destroyed. He was not destroyed even when he was killed. Even when he was killed, his death became your salvation and his victory over the evil one and over all the powers of this present age. And so, all of the schemes of the arrogant and the fearful to destroy our Savior, to destroy His people, will be turned against them by our God. Beloved, God preserved His Savior for you. It's not simply that God preserved His Savior in order for Him to be a Savior. He has to save somebody. He preserved His Savior for you. So do not fear the wicked because He will preserve you in Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Lord, we give you thanks then. For you have preserved us, you have delivered us, and you will deliver us on the last day. So give us confidence in your mercy and restore us to hope by your grace that we may glorify you everlastingly in the Zion which is to come, the new heavens and the new earth, world without end. Amen.